Trigger warning, this podcast contains a brief discussion about suicide and suicidality, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. and welcome to episode 60 of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker, as always. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we will discuss it. My special guest for this episode is another great man fighting the good fight for men's mental health awareness. Like me, he has his own mental health podcast, which I was privileged to have been asked on to. So it's only right I return the favour for him and invite him on for a check-in. His name is Daniel John and he's the founder of the You, Me and Anxiety podcast. Anxiety, overthinking, masculinity, bullying and the importance of having compassionate male role models for boys are all on the menu for this episode. This is how our check-in went. Dan, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thanks so much for coming on. It's my turn to interview you now because you very kindly asked me to come on your podcast. So I hope I do as good a job as you did on your podcast episode. First off, how are you, mate? Well, I funny, like my first reaction is, yeah, mate, I'm absolutely fine. But to be honest with you, I've had a bit of an anxious week. I had a bit of like a, a semi-COVID scare. There was a chance that I had been in contact with someone who had it. I went and got a test on Thursday. Then that night, I found out that the person I've been in contact with their test was inconclusive and there was literally no reason for me to get it. So then I, I was like, oh shit, but now the app is telling me that I've got to self-isolate. So I, I, we get onto it, but my Catholic guilt kept me inside. So then my my test came back yesterday morning and it was inconclusive. And I was like, God, this is what a nightmare. So then I went and got another test yesterday morning and I got the results through at 3 a.m. So rapid turnaround from the NHS there. And yeah, I'm, I'm clean. So I'm a bit calmer now, but yeah, truth be told, I'm in a bit of a anxiety hangover which kind of works out well for the podcast that health anxiety thing is such a big thing man i mean i joke about it now but i tell this story a little bit to friends because i went on the train a while ago just before second lockdown and i was running for the train basically to get on on the other side of the platform and i ran on had my mask on and i was out of breath and i thought jesus covid and then i had to calm myself down and then eventually after i got my breath back and i calmed down i was like Oh, okay, cool. It's just my brain telling me I'm out of breath. That's fine. But it's just those little things that make you anxious, man, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm not too bad when it comes to like health anxiety, but when my brain gets going and starts overthinking, and especially it was just the concept of I could have this thing and I could accidentally pass it on to someone else who could then pass it on to someone else and then someone else. And then the next thing you know, I'm freaking out. But I now know I don't have it. Excellent, mate. Your journey is such an interesting one and I have so many commonalities with it. So why don't we just get started? Let's start the pod with your baby, your podcast, you, me and anxiety, mate. So why don't you tell me first off how you started it and then why you felt inspired to give it a go? It sort of stemmed from a website I created two years ago called You, Me and Anxiety. I was one day sat at work and I was thinking about all the anxious stories that I've been through and the now looking back quite silly, but at the time felt very real and scary. And I realized how hilarious some of them were. And I thought, I always wanted to do my part and help reduce the stigma around mental health. And I figured maybe a good way of doing that is to to help break that stigma down is by introducing some humor to it. So I started writing blogs about my experiences from going on a date and not being able to eat 
to running away from a meditation retreat. That rhymed. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually a rapper. <laughs> yeah, to uh, I went to see Taylor Swift at Wembley once. I was sat right up in the gods and almost very closely had a panic attack because I'm terrified of heights. So all that kind of stuff at the time, it wasn't fun, but thinking back, it was hilarious. So yeah, I was writing blogs. Then I had friends write blogs for me. Then I put out a few ads and I had people writing blogs from around the world. And then I was like, why not start a podcast? I kind of figured that a podcast would help reach more people in my aim to help break down the stigma around mental health, not just anxiety, but all areas of of mental health. So yeah, that's kind of the, the inspiration and the reasoning behind it. How long have you been doing the pod and what have been the challenges you've experienced doing it so far, do you think? I did my very first episode, I think in May last year. The first challenge was that it was a great episode, listen to it back. Audio was absolutely naff, couldn't hear a thing. I didn't have headphones on, I just wasn't prepared. It was a real nightmare. So that was a steep learning curve. So then I started to research a lot more about podcast equipment, how to actually edit. So I got into that. But I say the biggest challenge for me is I am a classic introvert and... I'm not one to normally lead conversations. It almost works well for me because so in a work environment, when I go to meetings, you know, there's a lot of like small talk and surface level nonsense. And I'm not good at that. I just won't talk basically. But if someone started to talk about real things, things that I felt that mattered to them, I'm all ears and I I will talk someone's ear off. It's kind of like the balance of me learning how to lead conversations, which I wasn't used to. And it's helping me in my work life as well, because I have to do that but also it's somewhere where I'm comfortable with because I love talking to people about in-depth stuff and something that they're passionate about, something I'm passionate about. On that first pod episode, mate, can you talk to me a bit more in detail about that? Did you have any nerves or anxieties before doing it? And how did it feel once you'd done it and put it out there? I think the really important thing I always stress to people is whether it be a podcast, whether it be your own mental health journey, it's a journey. We're not going to be great at the start. Yeah, so I fortunately did the first two episodes with like two of my best mates. So I didn't have the nerves that I get when I interview someone that I don't really know or, or someone who is a professional in their field. Those are the ones I find the, the most nerve wracking because I'm like, oh, I don't know what I'm really talking. I mean, I, I know from personal, personal experience and everything, but these guys are the experts. So I've already put my stories, a fair amount of my story out there already. Yeah, I wasn't nervous about putting it out there, I suppose, because I'm interviewing someone else. It's not necessarily my story, but equally, I put the you mean anxiety plastered it on my social media. I talk about mental health with all my mates a lot. I used to be very reserved about it all, but now I'm almost too out there about it. And I have to be like, well, not everyone wants to listen to this, mate. I don't know. Yeah, it just felt good. It felt good to put it out there. You've just had a rebrand of the podcast. Can you talk me a bit about that, how it happened and why you felt you needed to do this for the pod? So there's been a complete website rebrand, you know, I a whole brand rebrand. Me and my mate, Simon Ball, shout out, helped create, the initial design, the cloud, the font and everything. And we literally just did that in his bedroom one evening out of the blue. And then I took that a step further and redesigned a little bit myself. And I don't know, it was just earlier this year, I was looking at it and I was like, this just looks naff. And as much as I like to think I'm okay with Photoshop and stuff like that, I'm not a designer. I don't have the eye for it really. So I reached out to a designer, junior designer called Hannah Croft, who is currently at university. And I've seen some of her other designs and I said, you know, would you be interested in helping me have a rebrand? She said, absolutely. So we worked out a payment deal and then she literally spent like four months working on it. And I'm very happy, very happy with it. What impact does doing the pod have on you and your mental health? Is it routine, enjoyment, making new connections with people or perhaps something even deeper? If anything, it's just a way for me to have these conversations with people. Like I honestly set it up and 
we've had a fair few listens like obviously not you know hundreds and thousands but i wasn't expecting anywhere near the level we've had it was more of like oh if if one other person listens to this and they get something out of it great but almost on a selfish level this is great for me usually when i'm speaking to people and i hear about their stories it brings me some comfort as well it can on the flip side to be honest with you sometimes i can't find it quite draining and i need to spend the rest of the day just having like some time by myself you know doing ticking the self-care boxes my respect for counselors therapists doctors is just it was already quite high but now it's through the roof because if you're listening to people day in day out you know fair play to be able to sort of desensitize yourself from all that so it's a way to make uh, meet new people obviously i had seen you speak before at an event but we had never spoken face well we haven't spoken face to face i suppose in a virtual way <laughs> But now, yeah, uh, you know, I've, I've got your number and all that. And yeah, it's just a good way to network within the, I don't want to say mental health community, but you know, that kind of world. How do you go about selecting your guests and inviting them on? What's that process like? Basically, this is the part that I struggle with the most is reaching out to people. I'm not that comfortable reaching out to people I don't know, even like the social anxiety, even on a virtual way comes in for me. Like I've always said, absolute dream would just be to have a publicist they find the people then i do everything else i do the research speaking you know all that editing so for me yeah the way i do it is basically from my network people i know and then someone i interview might recommend someone else and i reach out to them if anyone uh, wants to come on my by all means just give me a shout and uh, we'll figure it out <laughs> i'm not as at many i think well this is number 60 isn't it for you i've only done 14 i think so um i'm welcome to guests bring them on I imagine you didn't have much presenting experience before you started the pod, mate. How did you learn those skills on the job? And did you take any inspiration from any other presenters you might have watched or listened to? I'm not going to mention that very popular American podcast here. No, not that one, I can assure you. To be honest with you, I've completely winged it. I didn't put much thought into how I would present. I've tried to listen back to them and pick up on things. I am an absolute nightmare for saying, um, as you will find out in editing. That's something I try and stop myself doing um um there we go (laughs) (laughs) that'll stay in (laughs) yeah it's a really interesting learning curve for me um fucking hell (laughs) when i'm speaking to someone i've never in the past been having a conversation and they've said something in the back of my brain i've been like oh come back to that remember that think of a question around here so the first few times outside of you know sometimes hearing someone's story can feel quite heavy although it's you know super interesting i love it it's quite heavy I also, after mentally, I'm quite drained because you have to be switched on, ready to think, oh, they're going down this tangent. I need to bring him back this way or they're not opening up enough. Maybe I need to ask a slightly different approach to the question. There's all sorts of things that I'm still learning. 100% I'm still learning. I've got a long way to go, but I'm sure if I listen back to the early ones now, I'll be like, oh, well, I've come on, you know, maybe just five or 10% and that's good enough for me. What have been some of the best bits of feedback you've gotten from doing the pod? Is there one comment or moment that stands out that means a lot to you and your mental health, perhaps? I've had a few people who I went to school with who I haven't spoken to in like 10 years message me and be like, I just want to say thank you for the podcast and the website and kind of what you're doing around mental health, which is huge for me to hear that. That just stokes a fire in me. Because sometimes I'm like, well, this is just for my own benefit. I don't think anyone else is getting out of it. But when I hear stories like that from people that, you know, maybe I wasn't even that close to in school, to say that makes me feel great, basically. Does that make you take a step back? Because I think it's hard for people like us to take a step back because we see the listener numbers for sure. And sometimes we see people's profiles when they have, you know, established profiles and they listen to us. But you can never really gauge the impact until someone actually messages you, do they? Yeah. And it's not what I set out to do by any means. Like I said, this has been... 
almost a selfish endeavor. But when I hear that, it makes me realize there's a reason I'm doing this. And, you know, I hope within kind of my family and especially maybe the, the I've got a big, big Irish family within the cousins. I think they're now aware that I'm there if they need to talk about mental health. And it's something that I didn't necessarily have. I did have one cousin actually who really helped me and myself, but I'm now very, very vocal about it. I have no problems being vocal about it. So them knowing that maybe if they're they having an issue, they can come to me. I feel great about personally as well, because I want to be there for them because I didn't yeah, necessarily have that, especially as we get onto in school time, I had no one to turn to for support. So if I could do that. And how do you plan to take the pod forward in the future? Is there a particular dream guest that you can share with us that you want to uh, get on or maybe event exclusive as well? So an absolute dream guest, like ridiculous level would be someone. I love Dak Shepard's podcast or Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's podcast. Those two, what they do is amazing. Maybe on more of a closer level. I don't know if you heard of the company Sanctus. I'm a massive fan of them. They're based in London and they offer coaches into workplaces and general support for workplaces mental health you know if I could get someone on from there that would be awesome I'm quite blasé about it like I don't have a necessary like a grand scheme I'm just gonna keep doing what I do and see where it takes me and for any listeners who want another mental health podcast to listen to because I'm not a person to stop the competition where can they find you on streaming platforms and social media Streaming platforms, I'm pretty sure we're on every single one. So you just have to type in the You, Me and Anxiety podcast. Social media, I'm on Facebook. Well, I say we're, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Again, it will just, just search You, Me and Anxiety and it will come up. I can't remember the exact. I think Facebook is You, Me and Anxiety 1, Instagram, You, Me and Anxiety underscore, and then LinkedIn, just You, Me and Anxiety, and then Twitter, same as well. And is it and with an ampersand or the word and? The handles are all and, normal and. If you're searching it, do the, the, the fancy and and then you'll find it as well. We've talked about Dan, the podcast presenter, the host of the Yumi Anxiety podcast. Let's talk about your own journey in a bit more detail, mate. I ask this question to every guest. So why don't you talk me through your early life, your childhood and teenage years? And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Maybe let's start with primary school and the Dan we meet here. Primary school for me, I have wonderful memories of. I went to an amazing little village primary school. It was a close-knit community. I lived like 30 seconds away from it. The teachers, for most part, (laughs) were all supportive, lovely people. I had a good group of friends and I've still like my best mate. Well, we met each other in nursery, so we've known each other for 23, 24 years. So we we went to primary school together. So overall, primary school was a great time. Looking back now, there were a few signs that I was always quite a worrisome child, like sleepovers. The first time I'd ever go on a sleepover at someone's house, I'd be bricking it. I can't really put a pinpoint on what it was, but it was just being unfamiliar territory, didn't have my comforts, didn't have my mum for support. That kind of stuff was always there. I've always been quite a sensitive person as well I always tell the story of how it shows my sensitivity as a young boy I had lots of like cuddly teddies as a kid like most kids and I used to make sure that each time I go out say with my grandparents or my mum I take a different one with me because I was worried that they would be upset if (laughs) if they felt like they were getting one was getting preferential treatment that I think is just in me that sensitivity like I would always freak out if I accidentally killed an ant or anything like that. There's always been that level of just over-caring, over-worrying kind of thing in me. I mean, it it could also be part of nurture. My mum is a 
an amazing person, incredibly compassionate, and has brought me and my sister up to be the same. But yeah, I um, just kind of the way I've been, and and that bleeds into you know school, and it was fine in school because you're young, and when you're you know under ten or whatever, it's for my experience anyway. Thankfully, you know that was kind of wasn't pushed down or anything. You know, I was still a boy, and I loved playing football and playing Star Wars or whatever. You know, in the in the playground, but there was always that underlying kind of worry in me. I think it's fair to say your primary school was a fairly positive experience, whereas like most of us, I'm sure. The secondary school experience is the far more traumatic one in our education. Before we get to the experience itself, just tell me a bit about how your SATs test results and perhaps your attitude towards them shaped your secondary school experience, because that was something you mentioned to me off air, and why that ended up not being the group of kids you wanted to learn in the same class as. Yeah, so in year six, we were sat down to do our SATs, and I didn't really know at the time, but it was to decide what sets we would go into in our secondary school. I was always a good kid in school and I do my homework and that kind of stuff, but I was never the top of the class in anything. I just kind of bumbled by and, you know, was happy by myself and happy with my mates. So yeah, I did the SATs. I didn't do that well in them. And then I soon found out when I went into secondary school, I was going to be put into classes based on those those results. So I ended up being in pretty much the bottom set for most classes and typically those in the bottom sets weren't all that interested in learning and were more of the misbehaving types. I've just never been that kind of person. And when you're amongst people like that, it soon becomes obvious you can be a victim of bullying because I wasn't going to fight someone in the class or whatever. So they were like, he's easy picking and he's like a nerd or whatever because he's doing the work. So for me, that's when my mental health really started to deteriorate was when I got into secondary school and I was put in these classes and I was picked on from early on. And the issue was because of being like that sensitive boy inside, there were a few occasions where I would turn up to school and I'd just be in floods of tears because I knew what was coming. And obviously kids, when they see weakness, they then latch onto that. So that did not help my cause whatsoever when they realized that, oh, I can push this guy and, you know, he will end up crying or be sensitive or whatever. So that's a lot of my mental health issues sort of stemmed from those early experiences in secondary school. As you progressed through secondary school, whereas in my school, the quiet and introverted kids would be able to kind of drift through unscathed because they weren't the ones to pipe up. They kept their head down. Your sensitivity and quiet nature wasn't really picked up on because you weren't seen as a threat or someone in the social hierarchy. But for you, they were like sharks sensing blood, weren't they? And I guess for me as well, they were like sharks sensing blood. How did that make the metaphorical target on your back bigger? And did it ever become better at any point? Did teachers ever intervene or did they take you out of the bottom set class and realise that you were perhaps a bit more intelligent than your peers? Yeah, so I would say the first two years, year seven and year eight, were the worst for me. Well, my form tutor, Mrs. Martin, I think her name was, she kind of took me under her wing to some degree. She noticed in form that I would be very quiet and reclusive, you know, sometimes like teary. In fact, I know my mum had rang her on a few occasions to talk to her to see how I could be supported a bit more. But there's only so much, you know, a teacher can do when you see her in the morning and you don't really have that sort of protection almost (laughs) throughout the day. As I progressed, I think the teachers noticed that I was putting in the work and I started to move up a couple sets. Like I never made it to the top ones but I made it slightly higher where I was more welcome in those. And it, and it did get easier, but the metaphorical psychological damage had been, there'd been quite a lot 
done in those first two years. I remember sort of year nine and year 10 being a turning point where I wasn't picked on anymore. And I started to become not like cool or popular or anything like that. But, you know, people just seem to like me. And even the ones that, you know, kind of bullied me before, they were like, oh, no, Dan, Danny's all right we stopped picking on him so i was quite lucky in the sense that i had two to three shit years and then you know it started to improve the bullying side of things started to improve before we get onto that stage of acceptance when you started to experience that anxiety you also started to experience panic attacks did you know they were panic attacks at the time or were you just simply trying to manage them and survive school basically yeah i had no idea what was happening not a not a scooby i mean there were times yeah when i literally thought i was dying and i'd be in the middle of a lesson you know, someone would say something and it would cause, I'm already in a state of high, as soon as I walk through those gates at nine in the morning, I am on high alert for everything. So, you know, the small things could tip me over the edge um, and cause a panic attack. And we spoke off air about this one experience that stands out to me the most. I was in a, a science class and I must've been, I can't really remember exactly what happened. I think I was just, yeah, I was having a panic attack. I started to tear up. And one of the kids next to me, you know, shouted, Oi, sir, I think Dan's ill or something. So the teacher, he pulls me outside. At this point, I'm in floods of tears, just I'm in the middle of a panic attack, can't breathe, nothing like that. He sits me down, he just goes, oh, listen, mate, you just need to man up. That's it. Being an 11 year old, I was like, okay, right. Maybe this is all that I need to do. I just need to man up. And that period has had a big impact on me and my life. And it's something that I still talk through in therapy and my relationship with masculinity is quite a confused one. And I'm not saying it's all because of that moment, because it was still things going on and I didn't fit, you know, the male stereotype so much. But hearing it from a guy who was considered like the cool teacher, you know, he was a big guy. I honestly thought he used to wear NFL shoulder pads, like his shoulders were that big. So to hear it from him, a guy I kind of looked up to, looking back now, he was a terrible teacher and, you know, shouldn't have been teaching outside of what he said to me. That had a huge impact on me. Looking back, was that man up advice or shit advice, I should say, the first time you'd experienced toxic masculinity outside of the toxic masculinity of kid on kid bullying? And how do you think you look back on it now as an adult? Do you have any rationale as to how he was brought up? Or do you just think, actually, what a shit thing to say to an 11 year old? Because did it did it shatter your kind of perspective on humanity, I guess, a little bit or human nature? It wasn't necessarily my first experience of the concept of masculinity and, and what it what it means. I don't know where I got this from, but I distinctly remember having a conversation with my mom. We were walking somewhere and I, I remember saying to her, I really like being a boy, but I don't like the idea of having to protect some like the household. If, if a burglar comes in, I've got I've got to fight them. And that was like a six, seven year old saying that at this time, it was just me and my sister. So technically, I was the the man of the house as a seven year old. <laughs> So I can't pinpoint the moment, but obviously something had happened or I'd seen something on TV where I was like, I'm the man and I've got a fight. And growing up, I never really enjoyed the physical part of play fighting. I liked playing swords and stuff like that. But when we'd like wrestle, just never something I was into. So I think I figured early on that, yeah, I didn't, that kind of role didn't feel comfortable with me. And to go back to the, the teacher thing, I now look back and I, and I do feel for him because obviously that's the way he was brought up. And it, and it's that's not his fault. Could be his dad's fault, but then it could be his granddad's fault. And it just goes on and on and on. And this is where we need to nip it in the bud for the generations to come. I definitely went through a period when I was angry with him. I do think back and I'm like, what a stupid thing to say. But I'm sure he said it out of the goodness of his own heart because he thought it was going to help me. 
it just backfired, basically. Back then, do you think there was space for more sensitive and empathetic kids like us to thrive, let alone survive? And do you think things are changing? Or has social media just blown all of that progress out of the water? In my experience at the time, there was no place for those sensitive kids. I like to think maybe there is now, but I'm not in school anymore. I'd have no idea. And I still hear of cases of kids being bullied because they're the quiet ones. So I'm sure it's improved. And I believe there's a lot more support now for children regarding mental health in secondary and primary school when there wasn't really anything when I was there. I think that social media is an incredible platform for us to have. My sister lives in Austria. And at any point I can say, let's have a call and I can see her face to face. And that's you know, an awesome thing to have. But I equally think we as a human race have zero idea on how to use social media in a productive way. This is a grand experiment and we don't know the outcome yet. And I think there's still a lot to learn and a lot to teach, certainly younger generations, but not even younger generations, older generations. Now it's like, you know, our parents' generations are now the ones that are obsessed with Facebook and, you know, we've moved on to the next platform. I don't want to be the guy that's like, you know, social media is shit, you know, it's terrible for our mental health but it is to some degree. It, it can be fantastic and you can find your own communities within it, but there needs to be more balance and there's not enough balance. Before we talk about you and your mum and your sister and, and your dynamic growing up, you said to me off air that during this period in school, you had some level of suicidality. You didn't make a proper plan, but you made a start on it. If you could just tell me how you were feeling here and what you did. So I remember sometimes going to bed at night and I would think, what I would write if I was to end it, basically. That is as far as it got, basically, for me. I didn't plan or go through with any any methods. There was just that thought of, I was just so fed up at school. And I knew that I just had to get through these next five years. If I was in a job now where I felt like that, I could just leave. And technically, I could have gone to a different school, but I didn't believe that it would have been any better there. So, yeah, the main thing was just thinking, you know, what would people think? You know, would people care if I, obviously I knew my family would care, but would anyone in school care? You know, would I be missed? That kind of stuff, which all sounds a bit self-centered when I say it like that, but I was just so fed up and I just felt so trapped. That's kind of the the overall feeling of school was just, to me, I've never, thankfully, I've never been to prison and the whole concept of prison, like when I watch the documentaries terrifies me to my core because it, to some degrees, it kind of brings back those feelings of school where, I was in, you know, sort of the breakyard or whatever you want to call it. And you could be picked on and there's no escape. You can't just get up and leave. You're stuck there. So that was how I felt basically in school. So those, I feel like for me, I know obviously suicide is an extremely taboo subject still. I mean, it's getting a lot better. But to be honest with you, your brain, I in my personal experience, your brain is a puzzle solving machine and you can try different things. And if it doesn't get better at the back of your brain, it's always going to be, oh, but there is this one solution that will solve the problem. I say solve in air quotes. So I think it's almost, for me anyway, it was a natural thought to have because I was so trapped and so lost. And my brain was like, well, you got this. This is a way out if you want it. Um, And thankfully, it never came to that or I didn't go through with anything. It's so interesting what you said there, because I describe secondary school as prison culture or gang culture in many ways, where I grew up in secondary school. When you were going through it, what do you think got you through it? I was so lucky to have a core group of amazing friends. They weren't in any of my classes, but I could go to them at lunchtime and I could feel like I'm part of a group and a community. 
I say I had support in the sense that I had silent support. You know, I wasn't open with them. I mean, they could probably tell, you know, that I was quiet and struggling, but they were there for me silently. And that was enough to get me through those first two to three years, just having that support group with me. You grew up with your mum and sister as your parents had split up shortly after you were born. How did having those female influences in your life shape you for good? And also what challenges did it present? I kind of touched on before, but both my mum and my sister are highly compassionate humans. And I was brought up to always try and care for others, never speak ill of someone else because you don't know what they've been through. And just, you know, it was just a supportive environment to be in. Like I hear people's stories where their mum or their dad or both, they weren't there for them. You know, if I fell over as like a three-year-old and grazed my elbow and I was crying, my mum would be there, sweep me up, hold me in her arms and look after me. And I was incredibly lucky to have such an incredible mum and sister. You know, she's my big sister and she's always looking out for me. Even now, I know she... uh, (laughs) She worries about me. But I guess the the flip side of that is when I got to secondary school, I'd grown up in an environment where it was okay to show your emotions. It was never shunned. And I quickly learned that it's not allowed in the real world as I thought it was the secondary school. I, I quickly learned that I need to shut down my emotions and just put them in a corner and leave them be. The issue for me was that when I'm highly anxious or highly emotional, like what happens to me is essentially it will reach a point and if I don't alleviate it I will end up crying and it still happens to this day and it's still something I struggle with a little bit but I'm more comfortable with it now and even two years ago I would never admit this here that I'm still someone who will just have a good cry basically and I believe it's just my body's natural way of letting it out like I'm a pretty chill person in the sense I you have to do a lot to get me angry like physically uh, or raise my voice or anything like that so my way of letting it out I think is to basically have a cry and that didn't bode well for me in secondary school whatsoever as we sort of briefly touched on before so I wouldn't change the fact that I grew up in in with a strong sort of feminine energy but it's also you know in some ways it's caused difficulties for me. Before we talk about when your stepdad came into your life do you think that period where your mum and dad had split up and it was your mum and your sister do you think you have a stronger relationship with your mum now because of those early years? Yeah, I think so. Me and my mum are still super close. You know, we go out once a week walking. She, I love being outdoors. I think I learned from her. I love being outdoors because as a kid, we were always, I was always dragged out on walks and I bloody hated it. But now I'm so thankful for it. I went through a period until I was about 20, 19, 20. I didn't really speak to her about my mental health. But now I'm, you know, she's there for me and I'm there for her. She needs support. So I'm very close with her and my sister. And I was very lucky in the sense that my mum was a single mum and she had to work to raise both of us. But I had an incredibly close family all around me. As I said, big Irish family. There's a lot of us. My grandparents lived 30 seconds from us. My aunt lived 30 seconds the other way. I've got cousins all over the place. So I had the support from, well, a lot of support from my grandparents growing up. And my granddad was where I got the male side of like the influence and He was and always will be my absolute hero growing up. And I did have, you know, I kind of learned some male things, but he was also a very sensitive man. So it kind of helped show me, especially as he got older, he got more sensitive. And I saw that side of him and it made me feel a bit more comfortable because, you know, like when you're younger, your guardian or whatever is your kind of hero. So as I saw him, you know, open up, I felt more comfortable opening up. Like you said, your granddad was a massive presence in your life to the extent that he fulfilled that male role model when until you were 10 when your stepdad came in afterwards. When your stepdad did come in, how did you and him adjust to that new 
primary male caregiver, I guess. Did he step in pretty seamlessly? And, and what's the relationship you have with him then and now? Yeah, so he came in, I think I was actually about seven or eight. So I was a little bit younger than 10. But it was seamless, to be honest with you. I still see my dad and I love my dad to bits. So at first, a little bit of friction, because deep down, I still wanted my parents to be together. And then this new person was introduced. But my stepdad, Matt, he's incredible. And from the very get go, he came in. And I now know he sort of made the decision that I'm not going to come in and tell you what to do. I'm not going to pretend that I'm your dad and boss you around unless, you know, you're being an asshole. But I wasn't that much of a, a troublemaker or anything at school. It was seamless, to be honest with you. We did loads of stuff together. He, We'd go out and do like woodwork stuff in the back. He taught me how to play pool. We would go out. I used to love going to B&Q with him. I still love B&Q, just the smell of the wood and everything and uh, that, that kind of stuff. So, you know, I've heard of really bad experiences when stepmums or stepdads came come in and sort of change the dynamic, but he's slotted in perfectly. I want to go back to secondary school a little bit here because it takes us on to the next part of your journey. So in year nine, you had one particularly bad panic attack. But what you did after it really intrigues me. Just tell me the story behind it and what happened next. It was, I think, yeah, year nine, year 10. And, and, you know, life was pretty good at school. I was genuinely, it got to the point where I was really enjoying school. And I, I remember like one time it was half term and I was actually bummed out because I was like, I want to be in school. And so the flip from, yeah, my time in year seven, eight to then was quite dramatic. So I was loving school. And then one day I sat in a media lesson and I felt like someone was sucking the air out of the room and I was starting to get, my hands were starting to shake. And I hadn't experienced this for a long time. I still didn't know, understand it was a panic attack. I had no idea what was happening. So I kind of put my hand up. I held myself together and I said, can I go to the sick bay to go see a nurse? Because I think I need to go home. I, I convinced myself I was just had flu or something. So I went home and I remember that night I was just hit by waves and waves of what I now recognize are panic attacks. And in my head, I sort of decided, oh, I've reset to how I was when I was in year seven, when I was 11 year old. I made sense to me for whatever reason. I decided you've gone back three years. Looking back now, that seems like a wild thing to decide, but that's how my brain made sense of the whole situation. So the next morning I woke up and I was terrified. Felt like that year seven again, 11 year old. And I just sat down. I knelt by my bed and I prayed. And I just prayed to ask for help and support from God. And after I did that, it wasn't like that was it. All, all my panic had gone or anything, but I just felt like I had someone who was looking out for me. And I would say it took me probably six to seven months to sort of regain my footing and get back to where I was before. Those months, you know, I was back to, if I was going over to a mate's, I'd be panicking before. If I was, I don't know, yeah, going to the cinema and knew I couldn't leave, I was panicking and I had to build up that confidence again. And basically when I was praying, I just said to God, I grew up in a Catholic environment. I went to church from a young age. Yeah, I was about 15, 16 when this particular time happened. And I'd sort of stopped going to church when I was about 12. I said to God, if you support me through this, I promise I'll be a good Catholic again and I'll go back to church. And for about a year, I went to church every Sunday. Even if I was hungover, I was there at, you know, 8.30 and I'd do my part. And, you know, it helped me through that year, that religious part. But soon it flipped on its head for me personally. And this, I have no qualms with people with religion and I think, Religion gets a bad rap and it can be a really powerful thing for people. But for me, it changed from being feeling protected by God and loved by God. And it changed to I was scared of God. I thought if I'm not a good Catholic, you know, if I go out and drink or smoke weed or whatever, I would be punished for it. And I'd be punished in the form of having another panic attack and that kind of stuff. So in the end, after about a year or so, I just 
I prayed again and I sat down and I said, thank you for the support that you've, you know, provided me, but I'm out now. I, I'm not going to go to church anymore and I don't expect you to look out for me anymore. And that was kind of my piece with it. So you basically did a Duncan Ballantyne to God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, great idea, but I'm out. <laughs> when it came to your faith, mate, during that period, were there any other parts of the Catholic theology outside of, I guess, stereotypical ideas of self-punishment, guilt, God-fearing rhetoric that affected your mental health or shaped it in a positive way, maybe? Yeah, I mean, so the big thing was the fear element of me doing something wrong and being punished for it or then punishing myself. That was kind of a big element. And that's something that I still carry on to this day to some degree that, you know, if I mess up somewhere, I'm the first one to sort of get the old whip out and hit my back a few times. But positively, you know, I felt sort of part of a community. I was by far the youngest one in that church. You know, my aunt and uncle are very religious. And I think in those few years I got or that year, I came closer to them which was nice. Overall, I'm, you know, I wouldn't take it back. You know, it helped me through. And the more I have to go to church, I just say I have to, I go to churches on Christmas, usually, as a sign of respect. And sometimes they hold masses in memory of my grandparents. And I go to that because my grandparents are religious. And I, I want to pay my respects to them because that's what they would want. But when I sit there, and I listen to what the priest says, it doesn't resonate with me. It's so funny to watch inside my brain, because the priest will say something. And I in my head, I'd be like, I can't get behind this. This is wrong. And then in, in my head, I'd be like, mate, you can't say that. You're in church. God is looking down on you. You've got to be careful what you're thinking. You could be punished here. So if there's that pulling, you know, here and there I find difficult. And I think maybe if I'd been brought up in a Methodist or Church of England environment where, in my experience, they are more welcoming. There's more of a community. There's a support there. You know, I've got people at work who are religious and one of them, he had a baby. And for the next two weeks, the church, the people in the church came together and they brought them food every evening so they didn't have to cook. And I think that's amazing. And I think that's what we're missing right now is that we don't have community really anymore. But yeah, for me, it's not something that maybe I, I never say never. Maybe I'll be a priest in 20 years time. Who knows? But for me, I'm, I'm out for now. Let's go back to your school days now. You survived and made it past secondary school, which is an achievement in itself. And you went on to sixth form, where despite the bullying you received, you decided to stay in the school you're in. Also a brave decision. Tell me about this period of your life, as although the bullying stopped, the pressures and stresses of A-levels began. Who's the Dan we meet here now? Sixth form, I never in a million years thought I would be going to sixth form. I remember in year seven and eight being like, I'm doing my time and I'm out. But once I got to year 10 and 11, those kids that were bullying me at the time they'd gone or they just turned around and they ended up liking me so my experience towards the end of secondary school not before sixth form was a positive one and I was like well I'm here I want to go to university let's just crank out these next two years and we see how it goes sixth form for me I have I actually have really quite fond memories of it was kind of you know that time of like <laughs> you know self-discovery and uh, dating and parties and drinking and for me I got into smoking weed which I'm sure we'll touch on the pressure obviously got to me. Like I think back and you, there's a lot of work in year 12 and year 13 compared to certainly the first year of university. There's a lot of pressure going on. But this was kind of the time where I started to get quote unquote good at school. My grades started to climb because I was doing things I was more interested in, I think. And I was having fun with friends. I had a, a good support group. There were no bullies anymore. They'd all pissed off, basically. I was having a really good time just partying, basically. And doing my studies and I, this was kind of the time I learned that I'm a bit of a research nerd and I love to learn 
politics was one of the things I studied in, in A-level and I ended up really, really enjoying that and absorbing myself in that world. But I suppose behind the scenes, it seemed on the surface level, it seemed great. And then one evening, one of the many evenings, I got high with a couple of friends and the next day I woke up and everything was different. At the time, I didn't realize, but I sort of turned on, I like to think, this switch in my brain known as depersonalization. And it's an incredibly hard thing to describe what the experience is. But the best way I can say it is if you look in the mirror and there's a stranger looking back at you. And I woke up one day and I, and I felt like that. And I, and I honestly thought I was, this was it. I was going crazy. And I remember reading articles that, you know, if you smoke weed, you're going to develop schizophrenia and all that kind of stuff and the scaremongering. So I just freaked the fuck out, basically. And I remember going on Google and I, and I ended up finding this term called depersonalization. But at the time, there wasn't much information or research on it. And all the forums were very dark places to be with people being like, I've had this for like 40 years. I've got no life. I hate. And I, I honestly thought I ruined my life. I thought I've just fucked up monumentally. But what happened, I didn't tell a soul, which was looking back, made it obviously way worse. But I didn't want to admit that I was experiencing this. Uh, and for about six months, it just took over my life. And then I remember in the summer of that year, I was away on a, a lad's holiday and uh, we, I, we were sitting in our hotel. And I was like, I haven't had those thoughts or those feelings about depersonalization for ages. And I was like, it's gone. It was a short term thing and I'm over it. But then I'm sure we get onto it, but at university, it crept its ugly head back up. But now I have a way more, I have a lot more understanding of it. And I, and I essentially live with it now and I can live with it and it's okay. But at the time, yeah, it was the scariest thing I've ever gone through thus far in my life. When it came to you smoking weed, mate, do you think the talk to Frank drug culture that was back then or existed back then helped or hindered you when it came to your mental health and how you felt about it in general? I remember going on Frank website. I don't know if it's still a thing. It's, it's just such a blast from the past that. And I don't know, it didn't. I mean, it was good awareness kind of builder, but there wasn't support that I remember at the time anyway. And around then, and I think it's still the case now. But certainly around then, the the view of weed was, oh, yeah, it can't do any harm. It's natural. It's a plant. It can't hurt you. Like the other drugs, you know, they can do damage to you. But weed, you're fine. And I like the idea of that. And I preferred it to getting drunk. A thing that didn't help was skins was a big thing when we were younger. Like every season, there was always one character that would just do too many drugs and basically lose the plot and go crazy. And I kind of felt like that's where I was going with it all. But yeah, overall, there was no support basically for it. And the whole culture around, you know, you can't get addicted to weed. It can't do any damage to you is utter nonsense. But I, that's what was the general feeling in our year at school, certainly, that weed's safe. I now know that I would say if you've got any underlying anxiety, depression issues or, or any sort of mental health issues, I would personally just say just avoid it if you can. Or if you're going to do it, it's not legal well, by any means. But if you live somewhere, maybe in America where it is legal, grow your own so you know what's going into it. because. God knows what I was smoking. Like it was laced with all sorts of stuff. When it came to your depersonalization, mate, for any listeners who are uneducated about it or might know someone who actually has got it, what are the signs to spot and how can they support someone who is going through a moment of depersonalization too? So basically depersonalization is actually quite common and people can experience it without even knowing. It's essentially your brain's way of protecting you. A lot of people experience it if they've experienced trauma in their life. It's almost like your brain's way of just 
essentially desensitizing you to the situation. It's trying to protect you, but actually it makes it a lot worse. The signs is quite difficult to tell, I would say. If they're quite recl- all of a sudden quite reclusive, they don't want to go out. Like for me, I just stopped smoking weed after that. All drugs in general, I haven't touched anything since. And I confidently say I will never do anything like that again. So that could almost be a sign. So if you're in a group of people that do a lot of drugs or smoke a lot of weed, and then all of a sudden they stop, that can almost be a, a sign that something's wrong. And it might not be depersonalization. It could be something else. That may be your opportunity to ask them, you know, it sounds weird to be like, oh, why aren't you smoking weed anymore? But to just be like, is everything okay? I think the best way to support them is to try and let them know that it's not that uncommon and they're not going crazy and it is their brain's way of protecting them. Let's fast forward to university now and that first freshers year. Who's the Dan we meet here as I know you told me off air, the excesses of freshers perhaps took their toll on you when it came to your mental health? I had a, a fantastic first term at university. I mean, in regards to my mental health, I remember the very first day I arrived. I was nervous, obviously. I arrived and I met everyone. And then it was obviously the first thing you do, go out and get drunk, basically. There was a shop about, I don't know, 20 seconds from our flat. And I remember going over there with my new housemates. And I was like, I want to get some booze and loosen up a bit. I remember the only thing I could find was Strongbow. And that wasn't a good sign for me because Strombo in the past had made me vomit, <laughs> just the taste of it. So I remember I got a ready meal. I went back to the flat and I was trying to eat and I couldn't eat. And the thing for me is when I'm highly anxious, my appetite just shuts off, which causes a lot more anxiety for me. But I didn't really know, understand this at this point, And I was just a bit confused. And I thought, I'll eat what I can and just get drunk, basically. So I ate my disgusting ready meal, started downing the um, Strongbo's. And all of a sudden I was like, I'm going to be sick. So I went into the toilets and I was sick after having one beer, uh, one cider. And the rest of the night was me desperately trying to get drunk, but I couldn't because I just kept being sick. And I realized now the sick was just because I was so nervous. Like I was quite literally sick with nerves. And the next morning I woke up and I had no appetite. And for a whole week, I just struggled to eat at all. And it had a huge impact on me mentally, physically, like I was tired. I was confused all the time. And something that didn't help so much was two weeks before I went to uni my granddad passed away the one that was a big part of my life so halfway through freshers week I had to go home for the funeral and I was an utter mess at that funeral I was just in tears the whole time couldn't hold it together whatsoever so saying that first week of freshers was shit I then went back to uni and I started to get more comfortable with my housemates and then the fun began you know I was drunk four to five times each week and I was having a ball, like just going out, meeting all these people, doing stupid stuff, just having a laugh, going to lectures, but not really having to do any work, all that kind of stuff. And then by December, I woke up one morning after a particular rough night and all of a sudden I I was like, oh no, here's those depersonalization feelings again. And looking back now, I realized that the combination of a lot of drinking, going to bed at, you know, three in the morning every day, waking up at 4 p.m., not seeing the sunlight terrible nutrition, not exercising, just like everything, all the basics went out the window. So there's no surprise really that I just had a bit of a meltdown and I went back home for the winter break. And it was the first time I then opened up to my mum and told her about the depersonalization, all my anxiety, everything like that. And I went back in January and I made the decision that I'm going to have two months off drinking. I just wanted to one, prove to myself that I could do it. And two, I just needed a reset, basically. 
And basically those two months have now turned into eight years. So yeah, I haven't drank in eight years. And after that time, I started to look after my nutrition. I started to get into physical exercise, sleeping better, that kind of stuff. But it was not by any means an overnight thing. You know, I'm still learning now about nutrition. Like back then when I was in my sort of end of first year of uni, I was like, oh, I'm eating so healthily. And now I look back and I was eating, I was not eating healthy whatsoever compared to what I'm eating now and how I treat my body now. It was a difficult period, but it's something I needed to go through. Do you think looking back, that was the trigger for you to seek professional help, which you did eventually get, and you were also prescribed medication. So talk me through that process and what your attitude was towards both of them, I guess, as well. Yeah, so it was really that winter break in my first year of uni. My mum, my sister and everyone was like, you need to go get some help for this now. I can't really remember how I felt about I knew I needed help, basically. I didn't like the idea of taking medication, but then I spoke to one of my cousins who had gone through a similar experience and she'd gone on to medication and it really helped her. So I went back to university and I rang the doctors and we were lucky to have a like a GP center on site. And I happened to find, in my opinion, the best doctor in the world, a woman called Dr. Katona. And she basically took me under her wing and looked after me through what was a painful I mean, I suppose a few years, basically. So she prescribed me, I can't remember, one of the antidepressants. I can't remember the name of you know, the particular one. I took it for a while and it actually made me feel a lot worse. So I went back to her and I said, I can't carry on with this one. So she put me on another one. And this one, I don't know, it, it did help. I say it helped. It didn't have any horrific side effects. So I stuck with it, basically. And at the same time, she put me on the waiting list to do some CBT, which I did. Looking back at the time, I didn't take it seriously whatsoever. I kind of thought, oh, this pill is going to make me feel better. So I don't need to dig up all this dirt. I didn't put the effort in, to be quite honest with you. I wasn't willing to. I then was on the medication for maybe a year. I didn't feel comfortable being on it, which I feel ridiculous about saying now. But I mean, I never used to even take paracetamol. I hated taking anything to help me. And that's partly the fears of addiction and, and, a, and a few other things in my life. So I came off the, the medication, but then I took CBT a bit more seriously and I did a few other courses. And then since then, I've done hypnotherapy, acceptance and commitment therapy. I've tried EFT and tapping therapy, I suppose it's called. And I see a counselor. Well, before COVID, I would see a counselor whenever I needed, basically. That was for me, of all the forms of therapy I've done, the biggest thing I get out of it is just talking to someone who is a professional. And it sounds weird, but giving them money at the end of it makes me feel more comfortable about talking to them. I'm worried I'm a burden on people. But when there's an exchange of money at the end, I'm like, okay, well, this you're getting something out of this as well. So it's, it's okay for me to open up to you. You graduate now and you enter the big wide world. That few months of grad life for most of us was probably garbage. What was that period like for you and what impact did it have on your mental health? It was utter shit, if I'm being completely honest with you. I left uni on not the best terms. I had basically broken up with the girl I'd been seeing for two years and we were living together and it wasn't, the, it was just, yeah. I mean, that's not a fun time for anyone. And then add on top the fact that I'm leaving this, you know, like this warm embrace of education that I've had for what, 18 years of my life. And now I'm being thrown out into the big bad world, as it were. So yeah, I left uni. And during uni, I really got into photography and I started to do live music photography. I did 
event photography for different societies. And that was kind of my passion. So I figured that's the route I'm going to go down, despite spending three years studying politics. And I tried it for probably like six months. And I just kept getting to dead ends and dead ends. And it soon became apparent that I would have to do an unpaid internship, go to London every day, which a yearly pass is like, I don't know, like three grand where I'm at. And, you know, I've just come out of debt with 40,000 or whatever it was. So it just wasn't a feasible option for me. So then I went back to just applying for any old jobs I could find. I started doing unpaid internships, but like virtually, essentially writing articles for different publications. And I ended up getting a job with my local council in uh, the libraries department. And I ended up staying at that job for way too long. I mean, I was productive during the time, like I was doing, I was building my portfolio of content creation, which is now I sort of do for a living in my my current job. I felt entirely, I guess it was that feeling of trapped again. I just didn't have the confidence to go out and put myself out there in, you know, these big agencies and that kind of stuff. I didn't believe in myself whatsoever. And in the end, I, I did push myself and I'm in a job I now enjoy and I've got a great group of co-workers who are all very supportive. But I would say, yeah, I, I mean, a lot of people post uni, it's naff. It is really tough. And I was lost. I was entirely lost. And it's just strange when you're free for three years and then you move back in with your parents and you've got to get back to that dynamic. So it's tough, but for anyone going through it, it will pass. I can I, I can promise you. Doing the work you do now with the podcast and the website, I'm sure people at work come to you for advice or maybe guidance. Do you enjoy that responsibility? Yes. It's something that in my interview for this current job, in all my interviews, I bring up my mental health, partly because it makes me feel more comfortable knowing that they know, and partly because if that's something they're not willing to get involved with, then it's not a company that I'm interested in working for. And also, like to be honest with you, the stuff I do on my website has helped me get jobs because it shows that I'm able to create content, I can use podcasting equipment, I can use Photoshop, et cetera, et cetera. Before COVID happened, I was asked by the managing director to be the, the well-being champion of the workplace during COVID. So that was kind of the first time I'd officially been donned with a title. But from the get-go in my current job, you know, I've been very honest with everyone about my podcast. I've, I've got them all to listen, hound them to <laughs> have a go. And my boss is an awesome boss in the sense that for me, my anxiety, if I'm in a really, really anxious space, it just consumes every element of me i can't focus i can't think i can't sleep so my work will naturally start to decline on plenty of occasions i've said to him you know listen we've got a meeting coming up in a few days my mind is a mess and i know i'm not going to be good in a presenting manner and you know he said to me that's okay take the time be at work but you don't have to you know put yourself out there my overall hope is that the more vocal i am the more comfortable everyone else will feel in doing the same And I've had confirmation from my boss, who's been there longer than me, that since I've come in, there has been a culture change around mental health and the approach. I'm sure there's still a lot more, like a lot more we can be doing. I always say to my boss, speak to my other other team members. And if they say, you know, why isn't Dan in or why is Dan, why is Dan quiet or whatever? I'm always saying, just be completely honest with them, tell them. Because I hope that if they're like, well, if Dan could say it, then why the hell can't I say it if I'm having a rough day? And that's kind of an area in, in my working life where I want to continue improving with and I, and I would quite like to get to a point where I am still doing the stuff that I enjoy in, in, in content creation but I am looked upon as the person that they can come to or the person that maybe I look out and find resources that the the directors can bring in for our employees and that kind of stuff. 
And just finally, on this topic, Dan, given all you've been through, if you could talk to that 21-year-old, 18-year-old, 14-year-old, or maybe even six-year-old Dan worrying about his teddies, what do you think you'd say to any of them, knowing what you do now? I would say try not to beat yourself up about you being a sensitive lad. Try not to want to fit in and get involved with that lad culture because that's not who you are. And although it's shit right now, it will come to benefit you in the future because you will have stronger relationships with people because you are open and you are sensitive. People you know, will look to you for support and advice. Just hang in there and realize it does get better, basically. Our final topic of conversation, Dan, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, and you can include the circumstances or exclude them as we are recording this at time of the end of second lockdown or coming to the end of it. How would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Yeah, uh, I guess this year has been a bit of a mad one. I mean, overall, like, so for me, um, winter is not the best time for my mental health. I get seasonal affective disorder. So this could have been a really bad time for me, especially with lockdown. And overall, it hasn't been that bad. So I'm very thankful, very thankful for that. I've just kind of found that through the whole year, all of us have been experiencing this, but there's just been a constant low to medium level anxiety going on about the whole situation. And if you are prone to overthinking, it can certainly take its toll on you. Like I kind of briefly mentioned earlier, I sort of had a COVID scare last week, only really knew from today that I didn't have it. And I wasn't not taking it seriously, but this whole last week has really sort of changed my view on how easy it is for you to just, you know, pass it on to someone else without knowing. And the whole asymptomatic thing is kind of the biggest concern of mine because it was almost nice back when you thought, you know, you got it because you've got one of the three main symptoms. So it's been a tough one. Like my normal support structures have gone. For me, the gym is a huge part in looking after my mental health. And that was shut down for four or five months or whatever it was initially. And this time around, it's been it's been shut down. But I don't know, I, I, I kind of feel a bit guilty when I say, you know, I'm struggling because I'm like, well, everyone else is bloody struggling. Everyone else is in the same boat. So yeah, it's, it's been a strange one. But, you know, at least we're coming to the end of 2021. Hopefully, potentially by next summer, things will be relatively back to normal. And we can move on. Tell me about the first time you had a conversation with someone about your mental health. I assume it'll be with your mum, but if it's not, you can tell me different. Did you feel like a part of you had changed or you had entered a new chapter in your life? Or did it seem fairly insignificant and normalised? How do you look back on it? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't pinpoint really the very first time. I'll go with the time when I opened up to my mum when I was 18 and I was we were driving back home from university. And I was talking to her at a point where I was highly strung out already and I couldn't make sense of it. I didn't know what was really going on with me. I would love to say that it was a moment of sheer relief, you know, when you get it off your chest, but it, it really wasn't. I'm always very worried about burdening my mum and I've got a lot better now and I, and I will open up to her and my sister. But at the time, it was actually more of a guilt I felt when I was talking to her because I was like, I, I'm very good at putting myself in other people's shoes. And I think that's just part of like the compassionate sort of upbringing I had. And a lot of the times, all I can think about is how hard it must be, how hard it would be for me if I had a son or a daughter and they came to me and they told me about their struggles and there was nothing I could really do to take those struggles away from them. You know, there's nothing I can say or give them 
to take that pain away from them. So yes, yeah, it, it, it was a feeling of guilt, to be quite honest with you, the first time I really, really opened up. What triggers do you have that affect your mental health? Or have you not figured all of them out yet? Social interactions are huge for me. I would say that the core of my anxiety is to do with social anxiety. You know, like I said, going to a sleepover as a six-year-old, you know, I was with people I didn't know, you know, I could freak out and they might think I'm a bit of a weirdo. That's kind of like the narrative in my head. And it still runs through now. We briefly mentioned on my uh, podcast about dating. Dating for me is a, a just a huge trigger because to me, it's like the pinnacle of social interaction almost. <laughs> I guess the fear is this, I suppose more subconscious fear is that people are going to judge me and think I'm a weirdo. Now, when you come to dating, the whole point of dating at the beginning is essentially to judge and decide whether you want to carry on seeing this person. So for me, it's um, it's scary as hell. And I do it. I still do it. I've been on a few dates with this girl now and it's going well, but I'm, I, I would still take me, I reckon, it usually takes me two to three months of seeing someone before I start to feel comfortable and I don't think, oh, fuck, what if I have a panic attack in front of them? And I feel bad because it has nothing to do with them. It's all to do with me and my fear of anxiety in itself. Before we move on to the tools and methods, just on that quickly, given you are a podcaster in the mental health space, I'm a podcaster in the mental health space. When it comes to dating, how do you approach or broach the topic of your own mental health and you meet an anxiety? I always find in my head, there's a bit of a weird dichotomy where if I mention it on a first date the conversation will become immediately very deep very quickly and all flirting will die or I feel subconscious that I will be judged about it and because my story is quite deep and a lot of it is quite harrowing it's like how much do I give because I don't want them to find out and be like shit because that's a fear in itself do you know what I mean a hundred is a great question and it's I actually use it as a tool to figure out if they're comfortable with dating me early on it will come up in a, in a various way. Sometimes I don't tell them. Sometimes I tell them before the date because it will come up in, you know, the texting conversation. So like they might be like, what are some of the hobbies that you enjoy doing? And I'll be like, oh, I have a podcast. And then the conversation will go down that route. And, I, and, I, and it's been a, a cases when I've been talking to girls and it will come up and I'll say, yeah, I have a podcast on mental health. I run a website on mental health, et cetera, et cetera. And then that's it. I don't hear from them. That's gone. I'm happy that happens because I don't want to be with anyone. That, I mean, it's no fault of their own obviously it's part of their education part of their upbringing i don't come on like full on and be like yeah mate i have like wild panic attacks sometimes and i you know i I can't breathe sometimes it's nothing like that i keep it light-hearted and fun but if that's too much for them there that's absolutely fine but equally i'm not that interested in getting to know someone who would be too afraid to even have that conversation because for me it's a huge part of my life it's like with work when i'm in an interview i bring it up because they're not happy or it's just something that they're not interested in that's fine you don't want to work with me. I don't want to work with you. It's kind of the way I view it. What tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health, mate, or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? For me, the most important things, and it's not, it's like the least sexy thing in the world, but it's just having your basics down. Uh, and they can sound too basic. I didn't believe them when I first learned about mental health. I was like, well, sleep's good in that, but it's not going to help you that much. But for me, the sort of core pillars that I use which is sleep, exercise, purpose in life, having connection and nutrition or diet. If two or three of those are crumbling, likelihood is I'm going to be struggling in in some capacity. So I always try and just do the basics. And then outside of that, 
I'm a huge proponent for counseling therapy, whatever is, is your thing. I think it's so important to have that one person that you can turn to who is a professional who can offer you advice that they've obviously learned in their own education, but also picked up from others. I view therapy sometimes as, as much like the gym. Sometimes I can leave the gym and I can feel amazing. I can feel like, you know, like when you've got a good pump on, <laughs> you're uh, prancing around and you feel good about yourself. And then there's other times I can leave the gym and I'm just flat out exhausted. I feel just drained, whatever it may be. And that's exactly how therapy can be for me. Sometimes I can leave and I feel very vulnerable. I feel like I've opened some wounds. But each time I find that those wounds then kind of heal back stronger almost. And I have a better understanding of how my brain works. Toxic masculinity is something we try and break down a lot on this pod, Dan. We've talked about it a lot already when it comes to your experiences. And hopefully in a few more pods and a few more years, hopefully the work we do as well, toxic masculinity will be in a very, very small minority in life. What would you define it as? I would define it as almost linking to the stiff upper lip British culture we have. It's just pushing aside any problems you have, drinking them away, you know, in many cases, or sleeping them away with different people, that kind of stuff, just doing anything you can to silence it. And the sense that when you open up to someone, they then take the piss out of you and then you you shut down further. And, and that is a huge proponent of toxic masculinity for me. Even me being like the one that bangs on about mental health all the time, I still sometimes struggle to sit down and have a chat with a mate and just talk about mental health without having to have it linked to football or video games or dating or whatever. So me and my housemate, we started this thing where on Fridays we sit down together and then we just open up about what's going on in our week together. And even then, like the beginning, we sit down and we're both kind of like awkwardly giggling and smiling and we we don't know how to just start basically. And I think that's the biggest part for men. They have no idea. We don't have that training or that education on how to bring it up without it getting to the point where basically someone is drunk and they open up to you and then the next day you don't talk about it. We also talk a lot on this pod, Dan, about positive masculinity. And that's a great example of what you've just described there, mate. What would you define as positive masculinity and what qualities should a man exude to be described as positively masculine? Hopefully in a few more pods as well, masculinity will just be positive masculinity. Is it, for example, self-confidence, self-awareness, empathy, supporting others? What can you tell me here? So for me, just this is just what I think because it fits in with more of my my level of masculinity anyway, but it's just being a man that is able to turn to a friend and be like, listen, mate, I am struggling. I'm not being afraid to have a cry, to tell your boss, like, listen, I'm struggling. I'm going to I'm going to need maybe a day off just to have that. It's almost confidence, not in the confidence of a typical man walking into a room and feeling like he owns the room. It's the confidence of opening up and being secure in that, which for me is like the pinnacle of what I think is very masculine. There's a really good TED talk. I can't remember the name of the TED talk or the guy, which probably doesn't help, but I'll describe it how best I can. It's an ex-NFL player, and he's like six foot nine, huge guy, biggest hands you've ever seen. His whole TED talk is that the most dangerous words in the English language is be a man. You know, and, and, and it's a really powerful phrase that he says, boys who don't cry, shoot bullets. Now that sounds quite heavy and quite a lot but i don't necessarily mean it in a physical actual shooting guns but obviously he's american and and in america you know as you mainly see the mass shootings are of men who have quite severe mental health issues but you know who 
will take the piss out of someone else if they open up because they're struggling themselves. And that's like, you know, a metaphorical shooting of a bullet of just like pushing it away. The messed up thing for me was when I was watching that TED talk, I was like, this, the only reason this is so powerful is because it's coming from a man who is six foot nine, built like an absolute tank, is an ex NFL player and who fits with the male stereotypical boxes. If it had been, you know, a guy, a five foot two guy, who had a timid voice or whatever. And no offense to anyone short or had a timid voice, but you know what I mean? If it came from him, I'd probably be like, all right. But for some reason, I before I needed to hear it from like Alpha Mem. When The Rock or Dwayne Johnson opened up about his mental health and said, you know, when he was a teenager, there was days when he'd just sit in his room, he'd look in his room and he'd be crying because he couldn't handle what was happening around him. Or Chris Evans, not the DJ, Captain America. There's a really good YouTube clip where he speaks about how severe his anxiety was before taking on the Captain America role and how he didn't think he could handle it. Um, and to hear it from people like that, as bad as it is, that was what I needed to hear. And just finally, mate, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? Yeah, I think that's key that if, if they want to, you can't force this on people. They have to reach a point where they're comfortable with doing so. But for men to have that, I think there just needs to be more education around it so that at least the option of opening up is in the back of their brain. They don't have to take it, but it's always there. I really think, you know, from seven-year-olds need to be taught about mental health because I think even by the time you get to 12, it's almost too late. Not too late, that sounds terrible. But your ideas of, for me, in my personal experience, my ideas had already formed about mental health at that point that it's crazy. People who have mental health are crazy or to be a man, you have to be strong and powerful. That had already kind of cemented quite early on. Whereas when you're younger, your brain is a bit more of a sponge, I suppose. And if you hear it from a teacher, especially male teachers, if possible, but foreigner female teachers, if you hear it from them, you'll be like, oh, okay, well, today I'm feeling a bit sad. Why am I feeling like that? Why don't I speak to my teacher about that or the mental health nurse or that kind of stuff? So I think that's key. And, and I also think it's just so important for people of stature to be talking about it. I'm not a big royalist or anything like that. But when Harry and William and uh, Meghan as well, recently with her talking about miscarriage as well, which I think is a huge, important, important thing to be talking about. The work they've done, I think, is, is really good. And I know you do a lot about sort of sports. And I think that's an area that really needs to be tackled a bit more. And I'm, I know I'm sure you follow Paul Merson about him opening up about his mental health. And I already love Paul Merson anyway. And when he did that, my just respect for him shot through the roof. And, you know, if they're comfortable in doing it, I think it's great. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to Dan for being my special guest for this episode and for letting me check in with him. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling generous, help us with the algorithms and write us a review and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We hope to check in with you again very, very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Listener.